This morning's message, the Lord's Prayer, part one. I want to tell you right at the outset, by the way, take your Bibles, keep your finger here, and turn to Luke chapter 11. Turn to Luke chapter 11 and also to Matthew chapter 6. I want to tell you right, I guess, at the outset that you may hear some things that may personally challenge some of you. I hope that's true. But I trust and pray that uh, what is said this morning will be consistent with what the Word of God indeed says. We've entitled it the Lord's Prayer Part 1, the Lord's Prayer. As we look at Luke chapter 11, Traditionally, throughout history of the church, including today, what is commonly referred to and has been in one way or shape or form this morning, has been referred to the Lord's Prayer as this passage. And if you look at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and I will read them, it says, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And in response to that, Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. I want you to know that in Luke chapter 11, what you have there is a model prayer. That's what it is. It is in response to the request of the disciples after seeing the Lord pray to help them to know how to pray. In fact, if you turn to the passage in Matthew chapter 6, I want you to see something that, in my opinion, is very significant and very rarely mentioned. In Matthew chapter 6, which is usually, Luke is usually not the one they turn to, but Matthew is, we see again, pray in this way in verse 9, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., this prayer is probably one of the most repeated prayers in religious circles today, including Christianity and in churches. But what I want you to see is this instruction that was given by the Lord was in direct line with what he said in verse 7. Look at it. In verse 7, he just said, to his disciples. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard by their many words. This prayer that is commonly called the Lord's Prayer was instructed and given to them as a model with the specific instruction not even to use this 
in repetitious prayer. And yet, that is what we find today. That this prayer that is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, which it is not, by the way, is what is repeated time and time and time and time again. In fact, in the denomination that I grew up in before I came to know Christ, and still today, it is very common to recite the rosary. And in that course of events, this is one of the prayers that is recited repetitiously. And it is one in which the disciples and apostles learned from, but I do not find in their prayer life, and by the way, there is much of their prayer life, or some of their prayer life, I should really say, in the book of Acts and Ephesians, there are prayers, none of which repeat this prayer. What are we saying? This prayer is a prayer that can be a good reminder, as Pastor Chris has referred to several things. I think the structure of the prayer is wonderful to remind us of our dependence upon God, to remind us of the fact that he is our Father, to remind us of the fact that his kingdom is coming, and literally it is a prayer for the kingdom to come. And I appreciate it, by the way, our structure and service to remind us of that, the forgiveness and the fact that he's our Lord. And I do think that there's no problem, listen carefully, for a congregation to occasionally repeat this prayer. But it is really not a prayer for this day and age, and it is a model that was given. More importantly, I want you to understand that this prayer could never be recited by the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? How could he possibly say, forgive me my debts, as we would forgive our debtors? Impossible. Why? The scriptures profoundly teach us that he is without sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So while traditionally, and if you're offended by that this morning, while traditionally this has been called the Lord's Prayer, that is Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, it is the furthest thing from the Lord's Prayer. The Lord never prayed it. The Lord simply gave it as a model to charge the disciples on how to pray and recognize their dependence upon God, the privilege they have of going to God, and what is to come, and how forgiveness of sins comes, and how they are to react toward one another. So that we ought to also today, is what I'm saying to you, be very, very careful that we do not, even as Christians, though songs are wonderful, nothing wrong with singing that song, it's a great song, but we want to be careful that we don't get our theology from songs, that we don't get our theology from tradition, that we get our theology from the Word of God. And you say, and I'm using this purposely because, again, people say, well, it says in the Bible, pray this way. Put it in its context. He has said to pray this way and don't let it be repetitious. 
pray this way in this manner. It is not simply designed to be something. It is very easy to say these words or to sing this song and have no concept whatsoever other than repetition in our lives. So having said that immediately, the Lord's Prayer truly is what we are studying. It's John chapter 17. It is not Matthew chapter 6 or Luke chapter 11 at all. Now, in case you're out there saying, well, is it, can I not repeat it? Of course you can. Could we not recite it as a church? Of course we can. But I want you to understand the theological importance and the teaching and instruction behind it. It is a model. It is a guideline. It is something to help us to pray. It wasn't intended ever by the Lord to be repetitious in the sense of meaningless, just words that are said. Nor as the only way to pray. As we look in introduction to chapter 17 at the true Lord's Prayer, which is also, by the way, referred to, and Pastor Chris did this this morning, often referred to as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's really what it is. We want to see that, first of all, this is the Lord's Prayer, not the other one that we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Secondly, that Jesus Christ had a very consistent prayer life, and privilege is a, uh, excuse me, prayer is a privilege that every single believer certainly ought to take advantage of and ought to be involved in on a regular basis. Christ was involved in prayers. In fact, he was very consistent, and he was long in his prayers. We know that from Scripture. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5. Since I said to be in Matthew for a second, Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 1. In chapter 5, verse 1 of Matthew says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, the disciples came to him. Um, that is not the verse I wanted. But he did go up into the mountain. Let's go to Luke chapter 6. Sorry. I copied my notes over and messed up on that one. My apologies. Luke chapter 6. Go to another one. Verse 12, thank you. In verse 12, we see, And it was at that time that he went off to a mountain. Why? To pray. Now watch this. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. How many of us have ever, ever done that? Ever. It was very consistent for the Lord. In fact, uh, some commentators have written on the scriptures and said that when Paul went into the city, he looked for prisons. He tried to check out not motels but prisons. And when Jesus Christ basically went town to town, what he checked out was mountains or hills. Why? That's where he went to pray. And you would find that very consistent in his life. He was private. He was isolated. He was alone. And he prayed consistently. Some of his prayers are recorded in Scripture, and most of them are very brief. For example, we have him praying at his own baptism. We have him praying at the feeding of the 5,000. We have him praying at the transfiguration. We have him praying when he raised Lazarus from the dead. We have him praying, and we will see that in John, in Gethsemane. We have a number of the Lord's prayers that are recorded. Many and most are brief. This particular prayer that we have that's recorded in John chapter 17 is the longest recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ 
that we have in Scripture. It's the longest recorded one. Uh, now, did he have longer ones? Well, I certainly believe he did, just based on what I showed you. But this truly is the Lord's Prayer that we are addressing, and that's why I have part one. There is a very easy outline to this prayer, and it's probably in most of your study Bibles and very consistent through things. It's very easy to break down. In verses 1 through 5, which is before us today to begin, Jesus is praying for his personal desires. His personal desires. And he repeats the word son there as his son. Then in verses 6 through 19, we will see him praying for the men that he has been given by God, for his apostles. He prays for his apostles in verses 6 through 19. And then thirdly, we have him praying for all believers, those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ from their word, if you look at verse 20, and that goes verses 20 through 26. So we have three parts to this prayer, and that is the way that we will address it uh, in addressing the Lord's prayer as he prayed it. So it truly is one that not was given instruction by the Lord, but one that he actually prayed to the Father. I want to address one other thing here as I get into the passage, because I do believe it can help you in your personal prayer life. That's why I will address it now. The question often comes up in Christianity to us, if God is sovereign, and let me just put in there, he is. If God is truly sovereign, and he knows everything from beginning to end, and he knows what he wants for us, why do we pray? Why not just go about our business, since God is sovereign, and just walk through this world and not bother with prayer? Well, let me give you a couple of quick reasons. Number one, we ought to pray because Jesus commanded us to pray. He told us to pray. He said in Matthew, people like to go back to Matthew for the quote-unquote Lord's Prayer. Uh, the model prayer is the way I like to look at it. He said, ask. Ask, seek, and knock. Come before me. He tells us in Thessalonians to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He tells us in the book of Hebrews to come boldly to the throne of grace. He tells us in the book of James, for example, that you have not because you haven't prayed. And those are just samples. He wants us to pray. He tells us to pray. But more importantly, I think what we see here in chapter 17, it can help us with our prayer life, is God has not only ordained his purposes, but he's also ordained the means by which he does accomplish his will. And the means by which he accomplishes his will is prayer. That's what you have with Jesus Christ. Is he going to obey the Father's will? Yes. Does he know the Father's will? Yes. Does that cause him to avoid prayer? Absolutely not. It causes him to do exactly the opposite. Even though he knows he will fulfill his will, and even though he knows he will obey the Father, even though he knows what's ahead of him, he prays because God has told him to do so. He is God. We'll deal with that as well. And so when we deal with the concept, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ right here is one that we need to see. That if he is God, and he is, if God is sovereign, and he is, and if his plan is going to be accomplished because it was laid out before the foundation of the world, and it is, 
and he prayed, then we also ought to pray because God has designed that as the means by which he also responds to us and desires to accomplish his will and purposes. So that would be the second one. The third one would be just the example of Christ. He always did the Father's will. He always accomplished it. And he always prayed very consistently and even privately. That is why it's so important, and with all due respect to the video that was put up there, and it talking about it being a prayer for today, and the last three words, the way that is used by evangelical Christianity is this. You pray, just pray, and believe it's going to happen, and God will bring it to pass. That was the last three words in that video. Well, that is really not how God intended prayer. And God did tell us if we have the right petitions, if we pray according to his will. And he gives us example after example, and that is the way Jesus prayed. He didn't pray for escape for what was ahead of him. He didn't pray for things to be changed. He didn't pray for wealth, happiness, and success. He prayed for God's will to be accomplished, and it was. We ought to be praying for such things as boldness in the gospel. That's what we find out. This is all foundational to understanding the true Lord's Prayer. He prayed that we would have boldness to preach the gospel. That's what you find the apostles preaching. He tells us to pray that we might use our gifts for his honor and glory. Is that the way our prayer life goes? Now, there is nothing wrong with praying for our daily needs. That's part of the model prayer. But I would suggest that most of our prayer lives are centered around physical needs. You listen to prayer requests. Most of it's physical. Most of it's needs in this world. How many of us are praying, God, help me to use the gifts that you've given me as a believer for your honor and glory? That's the way to pray. That's according to God's will. How many of us, there's a lot going on in the United States of America. There's a lot going on in Rome. There's a lot going on in Greece. There's a lot going on all around the world. And we can see that on a TV and become politically critical. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have wisdom. And I hear Christians often talk derogatorily about our leaders. We are called, according to 1 Timothy, if you want to know God's will, is to pray for our leaders that we might lead a peaceable life. We ought to be praying for our leaders. That is the will of God. You see what I'm trying to show you? How do we pray? How did Jesus pray? Knowing the sovereign will of God, he prayed for him to be glorified through the Son, as we will see. We ought to be praying for people to be drawn to salvation. I know there are those who theologically say, well, I want to be very careful with my wording because I don't know who God wants to save. Show me that prayer in Scripture. Here the Apostle Paul says, who knew theology better than us, and it was used God, by God to write about election, and turned around and said, my heart's desire is that all of Israel be prayed, be saved. That's my heart's prayer. We find people praying for others to come to the knowledge of Christ. We ought to be praying for believers to be repentive when we find them in sin. We ought to be praying for ourselves for repentance when we're in sin. We ought to be praying for God's provision for our daily needs. That is part of the model prayer. That we realize it, it, it depends upon God's sustenance, 
not my intelligence, not my job. God can take that job away from you in one second. God can take away from you every single bit of inheritance that you've got if you're a millionaire sitting in this audience. And I don't think we have. Maybe we do. I don't know. I wouldn't know. I have no idea, and I don't care to know. But the point is, God can take that all away in a second. We ought to be praying and relying on God's provision. That's legitimate in that prayer. We ought to be praying, and we find out, and I'm just challenging our prayer life. When we go into this Lord's Prayer, we want to learn about how he prayed for his own desires, and we'll only be able to touch upon that this morning. We want to learn about how he prayed for his other disciples, apostles, and how he prayed for you and me, and how important prayer is. And we need to understand that praying and believing is believing because I know the will of God. How often do we pray this way? We should. That God would enlighten our hearts and minds to understand who God is, that we might grow in the wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That ought to be our prayer every day. And you know what? We're going to see that that's what eternal life is. It's knowing and understanding God. No wonder the Apostle Paul, when he prayed, prayed that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that they would understand what it meant to really know Christ and the power of his resurrection and how to live for Christ. That was an effective prayer life that was strong and was consistent. We ought to pray that in the physical situations that God might strengthen us in the inner man, to be able to bear with the temptation, or be able to bear with the trial, that we would learn and grow through it. Most of us pray, get me out of here. And I'm not talking about the church. You may be praying that right now. Lord, shut them up. Get me out of here. I don't know. But the point that I'm really trying to get at is, honestly, when we get words of this, this ailment's come our way or that ailment's come my way, oh, Lord, heal me from this, get me out of this, help me. When we ought to be praying, Lord, give me strength. If this is a trial that you've allowed in my life, and it is, help me to be able to bear it. If it's your will that I get cured, fine. If not, that's okay, too. Give me strength in the inner man. That is the way to pray in God's will. But, Lord, I don't understand the situation. Well, we ought to be all thankful when we get various trials and tribulations in our lives, James chapter 1. When you don't have wisdom and understanding, what do you do? Pray for wisdom, not pray to get out. And what I'm saying is, this is what we really need to understand. That the Lord was praying this way. He was praying that the Lord be glorified. I had a conversation with someone recently. I, you know, honestly, I, I don't remember all the conversations that I have, and, and things happen so fastly, so fast in a pastor's life with, with situations, honestly. Um, but I do remember having a conversation recently with, with an individual, and at this moment, I don't even remember who it was, but with an individual, and we were talking about the glory of God, and it, the conversation went something like, I don't even worry about what I put on, you know, and wear and so forth, and I challenged the person. I said, that's not biblical. What do you mean it's not biblical? I said, if I understand 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. God's not asking you to wear something you don't have, but when you put on something in the morning, it shouldn't be to challenge somebody to show you liberty. It should be to challenge God that I'm doing this for your honor and glory, period. 
The same thing with whatever you eat, whatever you do, how you work. See, see, we often get it mixed up, and I want to address that right away. That's not the way Jesus Christ prayed. That's not what he expected of us, to just be looking for ways out of things or to be looking nonchalantly. Everything that Jesus Christ did, he wanted to bring glory to the Father. And that's what he wants in his disciples' lives, and that's what he wants for you. And when we talk about prayer, we could recite, and that's why I'm addressing it, quote-unquote, the Lord's Prayer as we understood it traditionally and go nowhere in our life. But the real Lord's Prayer is found right here in John chapter 17. And to get our mind really focused on what that model prayer was really trying to get across to his disciples. So as we look at it, we look at the three parts. The first part, which we obviously are not going to get through all of it today, but let me give you just the beginning of it, is the prayer for the Lord's personal desires. Most commentaries put it down, he prays for himself. I look at it from the perspective that he's praying for his personal desires. What is the timing on it, first of all? What is the timing on this prayer? I think it's very significant. Why? Because number one, he just ended a private discussion, chapters 13 through 16, you know if you've been with me, in a, on a very positive note. What was it? Look at the end of verse 33. That's why I began with that last week. These things I spoke to you so that in me, in Jesus Christ, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. See, you have tribulation. You're going to have tribulation in this world. And then the very last words, he said, but take courage. He wants his disciples to take courage. Why? I have overcome the world. That's just what he told them. He is the victor. That was last week's message. He is the Nike. He is the one that is the one true world conqueror. The one that conquered the real world, the sin, its philosophy, its mentality, its ungodliness. He's conquered it all. And we can take courage in that. And we can look to that. More specifically, if I understand the passage correctly, he is somewhere between the upper room and Gethsemane. How do I know that? You know that. Well, how do you know that? Let's remember what he said. Go with me to chapter 14, verse 31. Let's put this in perspective. Did he just run away up into the mountain to pray chapter 17? I don't think so. Why? Well, in chapter 14, remember verse 31? But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly what the Father commanded me. That's interesting. That was his last words. What? Then he said, get up, let us go from here. So he's starting on his way to Gethsemane. That started at the end of chapter 14. When does he get there? Take a look at chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Chapter 17. What does he say? He went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Some commentators have said that he was in the garden and it was a pre-prayer in chapter 17. I don't think so. Why? Chapter 18 says he wasn't there yet. 
What is all of that saying? I think that's important to us. That he's having a private conversation with his disciples, and at some point in chapters 13 or 16, he begins to move out of the upper room where he instituted the Lord's Supper. He's going down. He hasn't reached the Kidron Valley yet and so forth, and he's been constantly teaching and instructing them. And as he goes along the way, he prays. Prayer was a normal part of his life. In a few moments, he's going to pray more specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane when the trials and tribulation of all of that pressure is on him and even his disciples will fall asleep. But before he gets there, as he's teaching them, as he's training them, as he's instructing them, if I understand what it says in chapter 14 and in chapter 18, as he goes along, he also prays this prayer so that in some way, shape, or form, what I'm saying to you is they are exposed to it. He didn't just pray privately, though he did that often, though he did that a lot. He also prayed even with his disciples, and they were exposed in some way to this. What is the very next thing that he's facing? Crucifixion. And while he's facing crucifixion, he's just told them, I have victory. And what is he now praying for when it comes to his own desires? Bottom line, to get you a little bit ahead of ourselves, because we're not going to get that far today, bottom line, he's praying that the Lord God, the only one true Father, if you will, will enable him to continue on and give him the strength to go through what he's got to go through, and that is the crucifixion. More intensely, that'll happen in Gethsemane, but he's praying for the Father's will to be accomplished. It's sovereignty with prayer together. What is the hour? So we address that. He looks up on his eyes toward heaven. Let me hold that for next time because I'll just deal with this. What about this concept of Father? I want you to notice this intimacy. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could truly look at it from this perspective. We find in Scripture that the one true God is called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to see just how close that relationship was to have you go away with something else this morning. In chapter 17, verse 1, look at it. Father, the hour has come. Chapter 17, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me. Look at verse 11, right in the heart of it. And I come to you, Holy Father. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, that they may all be one even as you, Father. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also. Look at verse 25. O righteous Father. He's coming as the Son. By the way, this was unheard of in the Old Testament. What he was saying, I'm coming as your Son which lines up with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only one, begotten son, the unique son. He's able to go. An Old Testament saint would never think of calling God their father. They needed a priest, and I want you to understand that. They needed some type of priest to go between them and God. All they knew was the sacrificial system. They knew the priesthood of Aaron. They were talk, told about Melchizedek. But they knew that priesthood, and they, they knew that they needed the priest to go between them, and they then needed the high priest. And it's all found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator. 
according to Timothy. The one and only mediator. But he goes to the Father. No wonder, go back with me to John chapter 5 for a second. No wonder we find this. You see, there is theological debate still today about whether or not Jesus Christ is God. I, that came up as, as a discussion this past week with a couple of people I was talking with, and it came up regarding um, uh, the concept. I'll tell you who it was with, Bob Dimlick. We had a conversation with him, and he, he was sharing a couple of people that he had run in contact with and books and so forth on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but he's not God. Now, Bob Dimlick wasn't teaching that. He w it was part of the discussion that he ran into, and he was shocked with the person that he ran into it. Well, some people say because he's the Son, so he can't be God. Look it. John chapter 5. Now, we studied this, but I just want you to see it. No wonder we find this in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were speaking all the more, what? To kill him. Why? He tells you. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, that was bad enough as far as they were concerned, but also was calling, watch this, God his own father. What did that mean? He tells you, making himself equal with God. They understood it. And when Jesus Christ was praying in John chapter 17, his disciples would have known that. People knew that. He was saying, he is my father. I'm his son. In fact, he refers to it as your son the first time he says it. Your son. He saw that he was, this was God, his father. He was equal with him, not non-equal. And so anyone who has the concept of the fact that Jesus Christ is a son, but he's not God, just doesn't understand what the scriptures say. It's one and the same. So he comes to him, and he comes to him as our father. Now, let me just say this so you leave with it today. How often do we pray and just say, Father, 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 without any thought whatsoever? Do you know what a privilege that is as a Christian to be able to call God our Father? You see... We do so many things by rote. This was not to be taken lightly. The Jews would never think of it. Jesus could do it because he was co-equal. And he referred to his father. And in the model prayer, not the Lord's prayer, he said when you pray, pray our father. That right there should have brought his apostles to their knees. The very fact that we can go to the God of this universe and call him Father. I personally believe that that's really what's behind the Apostle Paul when he said, Abba, Father. He was struck by it. I can go to the God of the universe because of the work of his son and I can go to him as my daddy and he didn't mean it in any derogatory way it was compassion it was passionate it was he was driven to the fact that God is my father that relationship now exists because of the work 
of Jesus Christ and my faith in him. That's what ought to strike us in our road in prayer. It shouldn't be roads. But that we humbly, no wonder you've got a tax collector in a temple that won't even raise his eyes to heaven, but looks down and asks forgiveness, not worthy to look up. The Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, in his true Lord's Prayer, starts by lifting up his eyes to heaven as an absolute reminder. And in case you are ever wondering where heaven is, there's the example. It's up. It's not down. Okay? He looks up to heaven. He knew where the Father was, and he prayed, and he comes just like he's instructed us, Father. He's coming as a son, a son willing to be at the beck and command of the Father, always ready, as we will see, to obey the Father's will. And if I've challenged you on nothing else this morning, it isn't just the concept of what the real Lord's Prayer is. It's this, as we have the privilege of coming to God in prayer, take advantage of it. Don't be looking, well, God's going to work things all out anyway. He wants you to come. He tells you to come. And we ought to be dumbfounded by the fact that we can pray, Our Father who art in heaven. We ought to be dumbfounded that because of what Jesus Christ has done. But when we come, we shouldn't be seeking just to come with a long laundry list of petitions. We should be coming out of the relationship of a father to a son who wants nothing more than to have their entire life pleasing to the one that they are coming to. May God help us to think on that. We'll pick up the text next week, Lord willing, and finish these five verses because there's so much richness in it that we haven't even gotten to. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, what a privilege it is to say that. We have our earthly parents, and we thank you for that. We thank you that by your grace, no matter how good or bad or evil our parents in this world have been or are, we still thank you for them. We would not be here without them. But Father, we also thank you that by your grace we have the privilege and honor as a created human being to come to the God of the universe and cry out, Abba, Father. Not because of any merit that we bring, not because of any goodness in us, because of the work of your Son, the one who is praying and has the desires to see nothing more than to you, for you to be glorified. Father, help us to exercise our privilege in prayer. Help it to not be with vain repetition. Help it not to be with just self-centeredness and focus on us. Help it to be with a servant, a son that's coming to you, wanting to honor you in all that we do. Help us, Father, as the disciples came to the Lord Jesus Christ and wanted their faith increased and asked for prayer, to know how to pray, help us to pray better, to be effective, to see the desires of your will worked out. 
Help us to be true warriors of prayer that are constant in prayer, praying without ceasing, seeking to have glory and honor come your way. And we pray, Father, and ask that this week you'd help us to see a change even in our attitude as we approach the throne of grace because of the work of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.